Hello, and welcome to episode number 33 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I'm your host, Exoacadamian. Much of the world has only recently begun to come to grips with the growing evidence emerging in the public sphere, suggesting that sophisticated, non-human intelligences are apparently in our midst, buzzing in and around our skies both day and night. This revelation takes the notion that aliens might exist out there in the great beyond of outer space and brings the idea much closer to home. For some, it's simply too close to home. Furthermore, many people just aren't prepared to deal with the idea that extraterrestrial or interdimensional beings are not only already here, but may have indeed been here as long or longer than we have. Of course, for those of us more aware of the extensive body of data regarding the UFO phenomenon, it's clear that not only are these intelligences piloting sophisticated craft in the skies above our heads, but they're also interacting directly, face-to-face and up close and personal, with human beings. We're not speaking simply of these others once in a while introducing themselves in the broad light of day. No, they, some of them anyway, are also conducting apparently clandestine missions to enter people's homes, passing through solid walls like we might pass through a fine morning mist, and taking people back to their sophisticated craft, or elsewhere, such as some mysterious matrix-like reality that defies easy categorization based on our current understanding of reality. Notice I just said some of them are conducting these kinds of covert missions. Often, it's important to point out without the apparent permission or often even knowledge of the people they are taking. I say some of them because truth be told, not only is sophisticated non-human, i.e. alien intelligence here, but it is here in the plural. And here I'm not referring simply to numbers of the same alien species. No, I'm referring to different alien species altogether. There are so many in fact that one quickly becomes overwhelmed by the sheer variety of alien types apparently in our midst the short and tall greys, reptilians, mantids, human-like species such as the so-called Nordics and tall whites, and many more. And it's not just the variety of alien species that can be overwhelming. The kinds of experiences people have with these various others also vary. Some people have decidedly positive, even spiritually transformative encounters with these others from the get-go while other people have much more traumatic, frightening, and discombobulating experiences. Even the positive encounters are usually disorienting in the extreme at first blush. One simply cannot overstate the degree of ontological shock that is involved here, as John Mack made clear in his research with alien contactees slash abductees. Even more complication arises in this already complex, convoluted discussion when one takes into account how many people eventually grow to see their experiences differently once the initial ontological shock has, to some degree, worn off. Even more confusing, many abductees slash contactees find that at some point during an encounter with these others, they realize they actually recognize these beings. Sometimes this recognition tracks back to early childhood, meaning that, for some, these encounters have been ongoing for decades, often without the individual having any conscious memory of this contact. Even more discombobulatingly, for those of us trying to make sense of the contact totality, it becomes clear that some people find that they recognize these beings from some deeper sense of a larger, multidimensional self 
that may even track over multiple lifetimes. Clearly, this is a complicated discussion, one that arguably cannot be even fully addressed without asking as many questions about who we truly are as who they truly are. Still, with all of this complexity in mind, what can we make of the jungle that is the territory of these others? This is exactly what we'll explore in this, the 33rd episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's podcast, some of you may note that we've discussed the abduction slash contact phenomenon before. The thing is, every topic we address here on the Point of Convergence podcast tends to beget multiple new questions for every tentative answer that is offered up. That's why you'll find me digging back into topics we've addressed before on the podcast, but at a different level or from a different angle. And that's exactly what we'll do today. I want to step back and see this phenomenon, the abduction slash contact phenomenon from a wider scope. And what can we learn about it? What can we learn about the entities people are encountering? And what can we determine regarding the different kinds of experiences people have? Now, when it comes to trying to make sense of the different kinds of entities people encounter and the different kinds of experiences they have, a good place to start is the free experiencer research study. Again, while there have been some criticisms of this study, and we'll go into those, this is still by far the largest study of its kind, and it was cross-cultural, took place over multiple years, and it's definitely worth paying attention to. It's still the closest thing we have to an exhaustive study when it comes to the UFO phenomenon. Now, for those of you not familiar, this study is discussed in the book Beyond UFOs, The Science of Consciousness and Contact with Non-Human Intelligence. This book was put out by a group called FREE. FREE stands for the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Experiences. This book is really important and it should be part of the library of anyone who is endeavoring to learn more about this phenomenon and try to make sense of it. Now, regarding this study, I quote from the book, quote, the free experiencer research study represents the first comprehensive multi-language worldwide academic research investigation on individuals who have reported to have had various forms of contact experience with non-human intelligence associated with or without a UAP. The vast majority of these individuals, however, have both seen a UAP and have had perceived contact with non-human intelligence. Our research methodology utilized two comprehensive quantitative surveys totaling 551 questions, phase one and two, and a qualitative survey instrument comprised of written responses to 70 open-ended questions, phase three. Unquote. In just a moment, I would like to get to some of the conclusions, some of the surprising conclusions that were drawn from this study once the data had been collated. Now, as I said at the outset, there was some criticism for this study. And to be fair, often any kind of study conducted drawing conclusions about anomalous data, anomalous events in human history will be criticized. That said, there were some fair criticisms for this study. I would just point out that it's almost impossible to conduct a perfect study. Some people are going to have criticisms no matter what. That said, I think the most fair criticisms involved the way the data was gathered, 
Uh, people were reached out to through Facebook groups, other kind of social media, and other kinds of advertisement to take part in this study. Now, the question came up was, would some people self-select out of this study because of the kind of people it reached out to in Facebook groups and things? In other words, does a certain segment of the population not join those kind of groups to begin with, and therefore would that population not be included in the data? That's possible. The other criticism was that the individuals themselves weren't vetted. Again, fair criticism, but truth be told, when you have enough people, and this involved thousands of people, then that alone should end up excluding some of the outliers or people who are not being truthful. That said, let's get to some of the conclusions from this study. Now, in favor of this study, I would just like to point out that it truly was a cross-cultural study. It involved populations from around the world, including people whose primary language was not English. So that really adds strength to the conclusions because you can draw from that that this isn't just people from an American population, for instance, just repeating what they've heard elsewhere. This really was a worldwide study. Now, let's get to some of the conclusions. Now, one thing that surprised people was how positive many people's responses were. Overall, between 73 to 85 percent, depending on which question was asked, of UFO-related contact experiencers underwent a profound psychological profile change for the positive. Furthermore, only 5.3% categorized their experiences as, quote, mainly negative. That was one of the choices. Only 5.3% chose that mainly negative response. 84% of the people surveyed do not want their contact experiences with non-human intelligence to stop. And only 9.7% believe the non-human intelligence they are interacting with are either bad or malevolent. Very interesting results. Now, when it comes to hearing stories about people encountering alien beings, obviously many of this is anecdotal. We hear about this on social media or through our friends or contacts or perhaps at a UFO conference. What's really helpful about this survey is that we finally have this put together into a large list. We find out what are the most common types experienced around the world. Now, number one might surprise many people. It's an energy being. 55% of the people surveyed encountered an energy being. That was number one. Number two, again, I think surprising to many, human-looking being. That was 52% of the, those surveyed actually encountered a human-looking being. Number three is the short gray, the three to four foot tall gray. That was 51%. Next up, you have the spirit or ghost form, which was 47%. The tall gray, which is five to nine feet tall, 33%. So by the way, if you tally those together, the short gray and the tall gray, they would be number one. But when you separate them like they are here, they come in at number three for short gray and number five for the tall gray. After the tall gray, we have the reptilian type at 25%. Finally, we had the insectoid slash mantid type at 21%. Now, there were many more included besides these, but this gives you the main ones and how often they are encountered by people around the world. So just to summarize once again, in order, in terms of who is encountered most often, energy being, human looking, short gray, spirit or ghost form, tall gray, 
reptilian, insectoid slash mantid. That is the ordering. Now, in terms of how many that is accounting for, for instance, with the energy being, that would include 1,305 experiences. Human looking, 1,195. Short gray, 1,173. And on it goes. Now, what's interesting, they also rank people's responses in terms of positive, negative, or neutral. Energy beings came in at 48% positive, 7% negative, 45% neutral. The human looking types came in at 61% positive, 5% negative, 24% neutral. So that one was very positive. Pay attention to that because we're going to discuss that later. That was the human looking. Next up, we have the short gray, 29% positive, 11% negative, 59% neutral. So again, more positive than negative, but the highest ranking was the neutral answer. Spirit ghost form, 46% positive, 12% negative, 47% neutral. Tall gray, 32% positive, 12% negative, 56% neutral. So again, neutral is the most common answer, but positive has a higher ranking than negative. Reptilians. Now, these ones are famous for being quite negative, seen as malevolent by many people. Interesting results once again. 17% positive, 23% negative. So this is the first one we have where the negative outscores the positive, but still 60% said neutral, which is interesting. Finally, for the insectoid mantid types, 30% positive, 10% negative, 60% neutral. Now, one point I would like to add, and this has been argued by the free researchers themselves, that part of the reason why this survey ended up with surprising results is because for a long time in ufology circles, the fear aspect seemed to be really trumped up. In other words, that tends to get a lot of attention. It's just the way our species at our current level of consciousness tends to respond. When you can dial up a fear dialogue, people will respond. And so there does seem to be a disproportionate level of fear mongering in ufology circles. Historically, I think that's true that that's been the case. And a study like the Free Research Experiencer Study finally begins to bring some balance here. And if nothing else, ufologists who want to paint a negative picture have to make sense of this data. Now let's move on to the ontological shock aspect, because one really can't discuss this contact slash abduction phenomenon without discussing the ontological shock. It is front and center every single time. Now we've discussed the ontological shock aspect elsewhere, but let me quickly summarize it. When people encounter these beings, it is a shocking encounter because these clearly do not look human. They're not animals native to the earth. They're clearly intelligent and sophisticated, sometimes quite large. And this is shocking. Our fear and flight response rises to the surface pretty much every time. That even if you're generally not a fearful person, your initial evolutionary biological response is going to be shock. Because it's not just about the way they look, and some are quite intimidating, but it's also that our belief system tells us these should not exist. Most people who have these encounters hadn't even thought about UFOs or aliens beforehand, and then suddenly they are in their midst. This is the ontological shock that John Mack talked about. 
I would also add that we have to be careful not to commit the error of speciesism. Now, I do see this happening. People hear a few stories about one kind of alien being, one species, and they draw conclusions about the entire race. Now, of course, we would cry foul if people did that about the human race or if people did that even about a specific human population. Oh, Americans, they're like this. Oh, Japanese people, they're like this. I've met three of them, even 10 of them, even 100 of them. We have to be careful of that. And I think we, because we want to understand these beings, we can quickly make the mistake of jumping to conclusions before we have enough data to support that conclusion. As an example, in the data we just discussed, there was more positive interactions with some of these species than I think many people would expect. So that suggests that perhaps this negative vibe about some of these groups has circulated in ufology and it's not really borne out in the data. I would also add that someone like Sherry Wilde, who's had an experience with different kinds of entities, she sees the reptilians as misunderstood. Perhaps they just have different mannerisms, different ways of communicating, and that's part of the problem. Now, I'll be the first to admit, there are some people who say the reptilians do nasty things to people and you can't trust them. That is part of the sort of information out there, the lore that's in ufology. And yet I just want to point out that some people have good experiences with these same entities. We have to take all of this into consideration when we're drawing conclusions to make sure we don't draw conclusions prematurely based on limited data. Now, I'd just like to say one thing undoubtedly that Free gets right is that they put experiencers front and center. While we can take pictures and video of objects in the sky, and that is fascinating, undoubtedly, and we can even glean scientific truths, perhaps, by some of these videos. Nevertheless, the people who are making contact with the supposed intelligences operating those craft are experiencers, contactees, abductees, etc. Free understands we have to listen to these people. And when we take an amalgam of their experiences, we really can learn more about what's going on here. Now, a comment about terminology. If someone tends to refer to themselves as an abductee, I will tend to honor that in how I refer to their experience. The same is true of someone who refers to themselves as a contactee or a volunteer, which we'll touch on later. Also, importantly, these events also do not fall into some neat either or kind of sorting. Sometimes the very people who began with experiences they initially perceived as frightening, traumatizing, and dangerous grow to also see these experiences as profoundly spiritually transformative. Now, Whitley Strieber is just such a person. Of course, he's perhaps the most famous abductee in history. He really brought this to the mainstream in the 1980s with his now famous book, Communion. Now, he refers to his early abduction experiences as rape. That's the word he used and continues to use. However, he also recognizes that the fight or flight aspect of our minds that is in many ways an instinctual response that emerges before higher order rational thought can even come online provokes very strongly negative reactions in us. Now, over time, Strieber has come to see these experiences as traumatic and yet capable of producing the kind of leverage needed to produce the most powerful spiritual transformations 
available to human beings. In other words, he sees the two as part and parcel. Somehow the extreme discomfort is key to the potential power it has to enact transformation in the human being. I've also heard Strieber talk about the kind of experience we're discussing here as a kind of birthing process. And in the same way that when a baby is born, comes into the world and immediately starts crying because it's so discombobulating, it's so different from the experience they were having inside the womb, this is something akin to what happens to experiencers. Their normal reality, what has been familiar up until then, suddenly is pulled out from under them like a rug. Everything suddenly changes in a moment. Because again, these experiences are highly traumatic, highly discombobulating. There's a lot of ontological shock because your entire belief system about the nature of reality changes sometimes in an instant. And yet, Strieber's point is that that's exactly what these others are trying to do is to help us see reality differently. And perhaps that's not something that can happen without some degree of trauma being part of the process. Now we should also discuss Stockholm syndrome because some people will argue when abductees slash contactees report positive experiences, it may be a case of Stockholm syndrome. Now, just to clarify, Stockholm syndrome is where people identify with their captors in order to maintain some degree of sovereignty and agency over their circumstance. In other words, when they have no control, they shift their perspective so as to maintain some semblance of control, or at least the illusion of it. So in other words, historically, when people have been taken captive, hostages and whatnot, they will begin to identify and be sympathetic to the cause of their captors, merely to allow themselves to experience some degree of freedom, sovereignty, agency. Again, this has been noted in historical situations for human beings. Many will look at the abduction scenario and say that even when people report positive encounters, perhaps this is what's going on. While I think that is part of it, and sometimes that may happen, when you do a close reading of the kind of experiences people have, there is not a disproportionately positive response based on what actually is described. So I think that while we should be aware of Stockholm Syndrome, it doesn't nearly account for all of the positive feedback people give. Another factor that I think we should consider is when information is lost in translation. We all know what it's like to experience cross-cultural communication that goes awry where various faux pas happen inadvertently because you don't know about the culture and its norms when you go there. Now, here we're talking about different species altogether. So what I just described was communication that goes awry within the same species, but a different culture. Here we're talking about different species altogether. It should not surprise us that sometimes things get lost in translation. Because this is not just, again, about different cultural backgrounds. We're talking about very different biological histories. The norms are going to be very different. Communication becomes much more complex because of this. And as the movie Arrival did a wonderful job of describing, sometimes even these beings' experience of reality might be profoundly different. Time was remarkably different for the alien beings in the movie Arrival. And that completely changed the nature of the communication. And 
it took someone with real insight to begin to bridge that gap. Now, I would add that when it comes to the hybridization program that we hear so much about, some contactees have said that they were told that these hybrids will also serve to bridge that communication gap because they'll have a bit of a shared biological history between the two different species. And this allows for greater communication for that gap to be bridged finally. That is one of the arguments put forward to explain the hybridization program. Another aspect of the contact phenomenon that is complicated and it only makes this discussion that much more complex and difficult to parse out is the fact that there seems to be a co-authoring aspect with many experiences in these alternate realms. So here I'm not just talking about contact with supposed alien beings aboard UFO craft. I'm also talking about people who have out-of-body experiences or shamanic journeys where they encounter beings where the people's energy that they bring to the experience, the priming of the experience really matters. What we bring to these experiences seems to have a lot to do with what we end up experiencing. So this only makes this conversation that much more complex, but I think we really do have to make sense of this. We have to account for it. And when we're collating the data, we have to make note of the state of mind, the degree of fear or not that people brought to the experience, the degree of positivity, etc. And we should make note of that and then compare one to another. And how much does that change the nature of the experience? Because again, the co-authoring aspect seems to be key in many of these encounters. I also think it's important to remember that certain behaviors are more likely to encourage contact than others. Now, to be sure, some people have contact experiences that seemingly has nothing to do with what they did. But for those who want to proactively encourage contact, there are things you can do. Earlier on, we discussed the figure of Whitley Strieber. Now, he has said that meditation has been key for him when it comes to contacting these others. And he said that from his perspective, when we meditate, we become like beacons of light that allow these others to see us that our being kind of shines into the universe and we become apparent to these others. Of course, this is somewhat similar to the CE5 protocols when we project our location in a loving, inviting, peaceful kind of manner out to these others in the universe so they can home in on our location. These behaviors have been demonstrated to increase the likelihood by far that encounters with these others will happen. Furthermore, it's important to add that in addition to these behaviors increasing the likelihood of contact happening, getting back to what we discussed earlier with the co-authoring aspect of these encounters, it also increases the likelihood that you'll have positive encounters with positive entities. Again, this bears out in the data. While there are some who look at the CE5 protocols or HICE, human initiated contact events, while some will look at that and say that's dangerous, you don't know what you might attract, that assumes that you're not entering in with a certain kind of priming. And again, I'm suggesting that the protocols within CE5 or HICE or what Whitley Strieber is describing in his meditation protocols is about a projection of connectivity, of brotherhood, sisterhood, of cosmic alliance, of peace. These are the kind of entities you're encouraging, you're calling, 
And that tends to be who responds. That's just what the data tells us. While there are a few, and I mean a very few, encounters where people really were following the HICE or CE5 protocols, while there were a few that were negative, that beings that you didn't expect showed up, the vast majority of the time, those encounters are positive. Again, that's just what the data suggests. So this is important to pay attention to, to be cognizant of when it comes to actually engaging in these kind of proactive behaviors. Now, in Western civilization, where everything's been flattened because of reductionistic materialism, where we're told that what we think about things doesn't matter, that doesn't change reality. The truth is, in these subtle realms, which seems to be the realms that many of these encounters with these others occur in, intentionality really does matter. In these subtle realms, what we prime the experience with really has a profound effect on the nature of the experience. Now, in a direct analogy, we know now that negative thoughts, when experienced and dwelt on for years and years, have directly detrimental effects on our physical health. This is somewhat akin to that on a subtle level. It's important to add that while many experiences turn out to be positive, and the data bears that out, we talked about that in terms of the results from the experiential research study conducted by Free. Some people do indeed have negative experiences and negative entities do exist. I want to make that clear. And sometimes when I say negative, what we really mean is immature, self-serving entities do exist. We should be aware of that. And we certainly don't want to blame or shame anyone who has a negative experience. It's not their fault. And these do happen. And sometimes there's really nothing you can do about it. You very much are a victim in some of these circumstances. And we should be aware of that, cognizant of that, and respond to people in like manner. Now, if you've been around these circles for long enough, you'll encounter groups of people who are convinced that all encounters with the others are negative, that all of the others are malevolent, that they have negative intentions towards us. They want to take over our civilization, destroy us, turn us into zombie humans, many different arguments, but they're all negative. On the flip side, you have some people who are convinced, groups of people, in fact, that are convinced that all of this is love and light, that there can be no such thing as a non-human intelligent entity that doesn't mean you well. They assume that they're all positive, all loving, all here to help us grow. Neither one of these positions makes sense to me, and both of them sound more like religious dogma from my point of view, because again, it's about people projecting onto the world, even if it's a world beyond what we've been accustomed to, they're still projecting their preferred reality onto that rather than actually paying attention to what the data is telling us. It's also important to remember that even snakes and spiders that are completely non-venomous scare us half to death because of that same fight-flight pre-rational instinctive reaction I discussed earlier. A few years ago, a movie called District 9 came out and it had aliens in it. And the showrunners wanted to generate empathy from the audience towards these aliens. And what they found in their research is that they had to make these aliens look somewhat humanoid to even generate empathy amongst the audience. If they look too much like spiders, for instance, the majority of the audience wouldn't even be able to generate that empathetic feeling regardless of the actions of these others. 
and even worse and more telling in light of today's conversation, they wouldn't even be aware of that irrational thinking. They would be just completely devoid of compassion for another's plight. Again, we might ask here, who are the scary evil aliens? Is it us? Based on what we just discussed, I would say that at least potentially it often can be. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, let's keep this conversation going and growing. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exo Academian signing out.